Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, late last year, the peak industry body for US advertisers, the ANA, released a landmark new probe into the digital media supply chain, and it looks a little ugly. Just one of the headline findings was that for 21 advertisers across 123 million in US digital media spend, just 36 cents in every advertiser dollar ends up in front of a target audience by way of an ad. To repeat, just 36% of digital media and marketing budgets from the likes of Mondelez, Shell, Kimberly Clark, Dell, and HP ended up in ads to customers or prospects. What happens to the rest? Well, it's a wasteland that my guest today says would not be tolerated in other sectors or industry supply chains. The marketing, ad tech, and media industries globally, he says, are in clear and present danger. Or are they? Well, Nick Manning should know. He co-authored the scoping brief for the latest ANA investigation. He was also the co-founder of Manning Gottlieb, a UK media hotshot for a long time, now owned by Omnicom. And Nick was also involved in the earlier shock and awe probes from the ANA in 2017, when PNG's Global Chief Brand Officer Mark Pritchard led the charge to clean up what he described then as the dirty digital supply chain. Ironically, PNG declined to participate in this latest ANA study, along with other big brands, a bunch of media agency groups, most of them, I think, and leading ad tech and media players, including Google, Yahoo, The Trade Desk, Amazon, and Pubmatic. The ANA even notes in its report, no doubt with intent, that, and I quote, everyone says they are supporters of transparency until they're the ones asked to be transparent. Nick Manning is pretty blunt on why many companies went dark on this one, and still are. So we're going to outline the considerable challenges that have been raised in the ANA report and cover off its key recommendations. Is Nick upbeat that change can and will happen? We're about to find out, although I'm not sure I am yet. So welcome, Nick Manning, beaming in early from the UK for this one. Thank you for this. Um, And I think the conversation is going to get very, very interesting. To keep it very, very simple, though, for a minute, Nick, let's just start with this top line thought about why should advertisers, CMOs, and digital marketing specialists give a wazoo about these ANA findings? Do they really matter, Nick? And welcome. Well, uh, thank you very much for, for inviting me to do this, Paul. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure. It's a subject I could talk about uh, all day and every day. But um, should they care about it? Well, uh, obviously they should, because um, if you are in the business of marketing, you are uh, in the business of growth generation, and you are uh, creating demand. And the way to do that is to advertise effectively and efficiently. And at the way, the way things stand at the moment, then it's very difficult in the open web in particular, which is what this report is all about, to see that uh, the money that's being spent is being spent effectively and efficiently. And we're talking about 88 billion US dollars worth of spend annually uh, here. So this is not this is not yeah, this is in the US or global that figure, uh, Nick, the 88 billion. Uh, that's the global figure, uh, but it's very highly concentrated into the U.S. in particular, obviously, where the open web is most developed. Um, and the U.S. is the kind of bellwether for the rest of the world. Now, it is not true to say that what goes on in the U.S. is exactly what goes on elsewhere. There are real outliers like China, for example. But uh, when, you know, when the U.S. catches a cold, 
everyone else gets flu, or is it the other way around? I don't know. Either way, uh, it's really important. It's the world's most important advanced advertising market, and everybody should be taking notice of it. And what goes on in the US normally translates into other markets around the world anyway. Yeah, they should care about it. And so why did the ANA revisit this? 2017 was sort of a, uh, an earthquake globally. I remember covering it at the time. And actually, you came out to Australia with the, uh, the ANA, the Australian Association of National Advertisers, for that big yeah. briefing, right? And that was, everyone was very, very nervous. But that was six, seven years ago, Nick. And so why is it still on the radar? Why did the ANA do this follow-up report that's just come out uh, late last year? Yeah, well, the, the, the study that uh, happened in uh, 2016 and uh, reverberated very strongly was, was about the more, the more general subject of media transparency. Obviously, that covered the, uh, the digital market as well. But the reality is that, and you know, this is generally uh, accepted, it, while it made a lot of uh, noise at the time, the amount of action that it generated thereafter was, let's be honest about it, disappointing. There wasn't as much change in the marketplace as we all hoped there would be. And since 2016, there's been other studies. So ISBAR in the UK published Mm. two further studies specifically into programmatic in 2020 and 2022, which continue to demonstrate the findings from the, the WSA study of 2014 that only half the money that was being spent by advertisers actually reached publishers and the rest was being consumed in transaction uh, costs. So, you know, only half of an advertising budget is actually starting to do something. The the ANA study is completely different because it's the only one so far where rather than just looking at the flow of monies between the advertiser and the publishers, uh, it actually goes into what I would consider to be the most important area, which is, okay, the money that gets to the publisher, what happens to it? After that, how much of it is is actually going out there to be seen by consumers, to be acted upon, to generate engagement, reactions, clicks, you name it. Um, and nobody had ever looked at that before. And when uh, I was at Ubiquity some years ago, seven or eight years ago, we, uh, we tried to guesstimate what that would look like because we had access to a certain amount of data. And at the time, uh, we estimated that Probably the figure was more like 15 to 25 percent, i.e., 15, 25 cents in a dollar was actually uh, reaching a, a consumer. So, the numbers theoretically, the numbers uh, that we're seeing in this ANA report, while bad, may indicate they're not quite as bad as people thought. But actually, the reality is the 36 cents in a dollar is probably optimistic, even though it's quite a shocking number, it's probably on the high side for a few reasons, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll elaborate those. First off, uh, the cost waterfall here doesn't include any agency commission, which could be up to 5%, so that's not in there. The viewability metrics that have been set for it are the MRC standards, which are the ones everybody works to, but they're you know, one, uh, 50% of, of the, the ad for one second or two seconds, depending on whether it's display or video. There's nothing in here about attention metrics. And the fraud numbers in here are, by most people's estimation, probably a bit on the low side. So I would argue that while 36 cents in a dollar is pretty pretty bad, the situation could be even worse. Um, and I'm not trying so could to get be- round to that range you're talking about. So it could be the 15 to 25 cents then that you, you might have forecast, you know, some years ago. 
maybe the trouble is it's impossible to say what what I'm saying I'm not trying to deliberately catastrophize this that it's the, the numbers are all terrible but you know the, the we've got to be realistic about it because the the advertisers who took part in this study in the in the US were among the more sophisticated ones who have probably got more uh, developed processes for working directly with DSPs maybe even SSPs um so actually uh, we're we're talking about the um the pick of the crop here as opposed to you know the long tail of advertisers so um you know all all that this says really because it doesn't really matter whether it's 15 25 or 36 cents in a dollar it's terrible whichever way you look at it and it's an enormous waste of resources so something mm. has to be done about it let, let's just be really clear here, though. So what happens is Brand X, let's go package goods or banking, whatever you want to call it, auto, has a million dollars, and they're going to spend a million dollars on digital media. What this report is saying, essentially, is that 360000 of that will end up in ads to people that that brand is trying to target. In the between all that, that, that 64 cents that sort of goes missing where does that go? So what's the supply chain? Advertiser briefs, media rate, you give it to me, Nick. How, how could it look? Well, it's, uh, there are various analogies for this, but it's a bit like, um, you know, there's a fire burning and you're passing buckets down the, uh, the, the chain to put it out. And every time you pass the bucket to somebody else, uh, some of the water falls out. By the time you get the, to the end of the chain, uh, the bucket's half empty. That's exactly what goes on here. Mm. So you pass the money to your media agency who are taking a commission. They pass the money to the DSP, who are taking a cut. They pass the money to the DSP, SSP. by the way, is a demand, for those that don't know, a demand-side platform, which is where platform. you buy digital media through, platforms you buy media through. Yeah. And the demand-side platforms uh, work with a range of supply-side platforms who represent the publishers. So you've got the buy side and the sell side interfacing, both sides taking their respective cuts of that. Then uh, by the time the uh, money gets to the publisher, but you, you have to data, uh, factor in data costs, costs of content verification companies and other costs. So the ANA study reckons that the, the, your original dollar is 71 cents by the time it reaches the, uh, the publisher. By the time you factor in the DSP platform costs, additional costs, things like data uh, costs and platform costs, 71%. Of your original thousand dollars will will actually make it to to the publisher. How does that compare with the thirty six cents that gets to the publisher in the end? What, what, am I missing well, no, something the, here? The thirty six cents is, is what the is what the consumer sees. So you get to the publisher, you've lost you know twenty nine percent of your value, yeah. and then by the time you factor in uh, low viewability, so ads that simply aren't uh-huh. uh, viewable under the standards specified by the Media Ratings Council. Media Ratings Council, yeah. Yeah. Then you've got invalid traffic, uh, which could be fraud, but it's not just fraud. It's also good bots and and um, uh, web crawlers and things like that. Uh, not forgetting that fifty percent of all web traffic in the world is artificial. Much of it is benign. Google, for example, are a big part of that. A big chunk of what the study looked at was not measurable. In other words, they couldn't actually track. Uh, the data all the way through. So that disappears into a bit of a black hole. And then you've got these rather exotic made-for-advertising sites, which we should dive into in a second. But they're Mm. effectively been written off in this study as being of no value at all, which for many advertisers would be the case. So by the time you get down to what the study calls true ad spend, 
you're looking at 36 cents in the dollar being the, the net number allowing for transaction costs and loss of ad exposure. Yeah. And so the implications here, of course, are that whilst marketing and customer is all about growth, you've got quite a big sort of slog on all of that happening because you, you don't have media working to potential customers, prospects and so forth. This is the implications here is actually that this wastage actually has business impact, Nick. That's ultimately where we're headed, aren't we? Well, absolutely, because, I mean, the whole point about being given a budget is that you're supposed to make it bigger than it is. It's quite interesting, actually, because um, somebody sort of said, well, isn't this just like uh, any market where, you know, if I go and buy uh, bananas in a supermarket, then everyone's, by the time everyone's taken their cut, the producer uh, only gets a, a small percentage of the, of the return. It's completely the wrong way of looking at it. This is just like this is like the financial market. If you, as a as an investor, uh, go to your broker and say, "Right, I, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars. I want you to invest this money," they will go to the investment platforms like a Fidelity, for example. And there's a platform fee. You know, there, there are costs associated with using these transactions. But what you expect at the end of all that is Fidelity or whoever's doing the investing to make your money grow. So that by the mm. time that you actually get the return, you get the return minus the costs. And the opposite is working in the in the online market, open web market here. You're actually losing all that value. Now, one of the key things that I say, which uh, isn't specifically stated in the document, but I think is absolutely the case, is that the costs that are applied early in the chain, DSPs, SSPs, data companies, and so on and so forth, are incurred in order to make the advertising theoretically much more effective because you're saying by using the DSPs, you're going to be targeting more precisely, getting better quality inventory and maximizing the the prospect of a return. Ditto for all of the other players in the supply chain. They're supposed to be adding value such that the advertising is even more effective. It cannot be more effective if so much of it is lost in poor viewability, invalid traffic, MFAs, yada, yada, yada. And one of the most stunning findings of the entire report, apart from the 36 cents, is that there is virtually no correlation in the open web marketplace based on this study between price and quality. Absolutely none whatsoever. They've looked at all of the data and people are paying high prices for low quality, sometimes low prices for good quality. There is no correlation. So what we've got here is an incredibly messy marketplace, which is not operating effectively and efficiently, even though the machines have all been set up to try and make that happen. So you know, you really mm. have to look at this and go, this is a market that is completely dysfunctional. And uh, you know, there are other, uh, su- there's other supporting evidence of that in here. So for example, the average campaign uh, in the study appeared on 44,000 uh, websites, which is ludicrous, whichever way you look at it. But 86% of all the impressions in the study came from just 3,000 websites. So you can actually get most of your advertising effect just from a, a relatively small handful of websites. It means that the remaining 41,000 only provided 14% of the impressions. So what is the point of that? So you know, this is a market that is dysfunctional. The machines are being set up to do the job, but they're not doing the job, and it's out of control. And uh, that, that is the, one of the, the starkest findings, I think, of the entire yeah. report. 
Well, it's a great point. And so why has the market been allowed to be dysfunctional? How have we got there? And, I, and you made the point when we spoke earlier about how, you know, in a lot of other sectors, this wouldn't be tolerated or it wouldn't be, it just it wouldn't happen, right? The, the sort of wastage, the, the quantum of wastage we're talking, yeah, there's wastage and stuff happens in other sectors, but this is, this is significant. So why is this market, why is the marketing media ad tech market so dysfunctional? How is it allowed to get behave like this? And it wouldn't happen in other sectors. Is they, are they two points you broadly yes. concur with? Well, it's true. I mean, I can't think of an equivalent in any other industry that's like this, although there may exist, but just not something that you know I'm aware of. But, you know, we're talking about a, a massive global marketplace, which is out of control here. The absolute truth is it's been a massive gravy train for a lot of people for several years now. And the thing about gravy trains is that nobody wants to derail them if they're benefiting from it. So during the, the last, well, 20 years, really, enormous sums of money have been made by the large digital platforms, by the ad tech community, by agencies. They've all been part of this kind of gold rush, really. I'm mixing metaphors here between gravy chains and, and gold rushes, but yeah. but you get the point. And in some ways, what's happened is a, a massive shift has taken place in the advertising industry over the last 20 years. I mean, before then, the people involved in the supply chain, the media owners, uh, the intermediaries, of which there were fewer, of course, they all acted in service of the advertiser. And their job was to make advertising work harder and be more effective, because if it was, advertisers would spend more money and everybody would benefit. The focus has now shifted towards the supply side, and the supply side now drives that gravy train to their advantage and to the disadvantage of the advertisers. And sad to say, the media agencies have also been part of that and have effectively crossed the floor to become part of the supply side in many respects, rather than being uh, people who are entirely responsible for the good governance of the, of the client budget. And that started to happen several years ago, not before, well, even sort of before the, the heydays of digital, when, when agencies started to take money from media owners uh, a while back uh, in the early 2000s and late 90s. That's when they, they made the transition from being the servant of the uh, advertiser to become compromised by the earnings from the media owner sector, which is what a lot of the ANA study of 2016 was all about. And mm. you know, the fact is, Paul, that the media agencies often earn more money from their media owner incomes than they do from their client incomes. And then you know who your boss is. So uh, you know that, mm. that shift happened long before this, but it's but it's been it's been happening on steroids in the in the digital marketplace now for the last fifteen twenty years. Talking earlier as well, you mentioned that it's more than surprising for you. you expected something like this behaviour that's that's happened as a result of the report coming up, but everyone's gone silent, Nick. Sort of the the media agencies, the ad tech suppliers, the entire uh, well, a good rump of the industry after this report come came out late last year, November, I think. You've been surprised by the lack of engagement and debate, and people sort of hiding under sort of uh, blankets. Is that the case? Well, uh, surprise! I've been surprised uh, about this for a very long time now. If, if one can be surprised for a long time, yes. um, you know, it, it is extraordinary, whichever way you look at it, the lack of reaction. But of course, it's also not surprising because the people who are not reacting are the ones who have benefited the most from the last 15 or 20 years of this. So, um, you know, if we go back to the gravy train thing, 
if you've been a beneficiary of that, it's not in your interest to uh, want to do anything about it. And uh, I think it was a comment you made earlier on from the study, which is everybody's in favour of transparency until they're required to be transparent. There's a lot of lip service paid to this, which is mostly complete bullshit, of course. And we've had study after study. So there was the 2014 WFA study. There was the ANA study in 2016, a couple of ISBAR studies, ANA study, uh, and now this one. And the reaction each time has been roaring silence from uh, the communities who have been the beneficiaries of it. So we're talking about the media agencies, the ad tech industry, the publishers and others have said nothing. Do you think if they decided media agencies could fix this in, in a heartbeat, like could they do something more significant and material than any other part of the supply chain? Yes, in terms of supply chain, uh, it will come on to the advertiser role and all this in a second. But if anybody could fix it, it would be the media agencies because in the end, they are able to speak on behalf of the advertiser and carry out the advertiser's instructions. So if if a media agency group were to say, right, you know, we're going to call time on this and we're now going to, you know, carry out the the instructions of uh, the advertiser to the letter and the client says, you know, we, we want to be completely transparent, they would only then work with the relevant ad tech players to who wanted to be transparent and do this. But more importantly still, there's transparency and then there's effectiveness. And if the media agencies want to do the right thing by their clients, which you'd think they would, then they wouldn't stand for any of this. They would say, it is not acceptable that for every dollar I spend on behalf of my client, whoever they may be, only 36 cents is is having any kind of effect or has a chance of any kind of effect, uh, even before factoring in you know, the missing bits about attention and so on. So by virtue mm. of tolerating this, they are absolutely negligent in terms of their role. They mm. should be the ones who should be manning the barricades and demonstrating in the streets about this because uh, they are the ones who act on behalf of the advertiser to maximize the return of their dollar. So let's take the go back to the equivalent conversation about investment brokers and, and platforms and so on and so forth. So if I were acting on behalf of a, if I'm a broker acting on behalf of my investing client, and I went back and said, you know, that $1,000 you gave me to invest in the stock market, it's worth $360 now. Sorry about that. You know, that's just the way the market works. Nothing we can do about it. Well, that doesn't happen, of course. What they do is if it's, they have to ebb and flow with the marketplace and ups and downs. But they see their role as taking that $1,000 and turning it into more than $1,000. So the media agencies are in the position of being investment brokers who should be taking that $1,000 and making it work, making it look like more than $1,000 in the market. But they're presiding over a, 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 a system where systematically that $1,000 reduces to $360. So they are in the box seat here. Yes, there are transaction costs which need to be incurred if you're going to work programmatically, but their role really is to husband that, to govern it, and to make sure that the system works to the advantage of the advertiser and they don't lose lose 64 cents in the dollar. We're going to very, as you, as we keep alluding, we're going to get to the advertiser and brands in a second. But just before we do that, what are then media agencies, for instance, what is the narrative? What are they telling their clients that seems to appease any concerns that clients may have when they come and ask the questions? What is coming back? What is feeding up from the supply chain back to advertisers to say, nothing to see here, it's all good? Well, I think that the issue is, and um, uh, we can get quite philosophical about this, but the reality of the marketplace is that 
the advertisers are up against oligopolies in the in terms of who they're talking to. So there's an oligopoly in the media agency marketplace. There are only six substantial groups who represent 80% of worldwide spend. There's oligopoly in the ad tech market. Um, I'm sure Google and Trade Desk would say, no, no, we've got lots of competition. But in the reality, that's not quite how it works. They they dominate the marketplace. And then you've got, you know, to a certain extent, publisher oligopolies in terms of meta and Google themselves and, and, and even now TikTok and so on. And then even in the sort of uh, the periphery areas of, of uh, content verification with the strength of uh, the, the those guys, Double Verify, IES, and so on and so forth. So the advertiser really is is like David and Goliath, except they haven't got a sling. Uh, they're up against some extremely well-resourced and huge companies here. And although they cluster themselves into advertiser trade bodies like the AANA, ANA, ISPO, et cetera, really they're on their own. They have to figure out the solutions for themselves. So if they go to the media agencies, the media agencies will tell them, we're all over it, we've got it under control, look at this machine here, and they will be given a you know, pretty convincing story. That's, that's at best, assuming they even ask the questions in the first place. And it, it's kind of such a downstream and such a technical area that it's very easy for clients to sort of say, you know what, I need to trust my guys to look after this for me. The truth is that this is such a gravy train that nobody on the supply side wants to uh, do anything about it. And the media agencies are part of the supply chain. And that's really the only reason I can think of why when reports like this come out, you get this roaring silence from all of them. Because mm. in reality, they should be the ones who are saying, you know, this is unacceptable and we're going to do something about it. But none of the, none of the groups have come out and supported this report. None of them have said, yes, we agree with the findings of the report. They've said nothing. Because mm. if you say something, you've got to say, surely, yes, something needs to be done about this. But if your intention is to do nothing about it, then uh, you're not going to say that, are you? No, and I have to say in some of these, I mean, I was just thinking as you were saying that, well, so what about the role of trade media and asking the questions of the groups, at least in the US, but I'm not sure what happens there. Uh, you can get bumped off and no comment, which is which is a hard one. But there's, you know, there is the opportunity for at least this to be to be elevated in, in, in debate. Now, when you talk about everything like you just said, uh, Nick, obviously, you know, you've got brands and advertisers even uh, inside the ANA that wouldn't support it. And ironically, I'm, I was fascinated to see that uh, P&G didn't participate in this. And, and Mark Pritchett and P&G were obviously the lightning rod for yeah. so much of this five or six years ago. So why would someone like P&G and Mark Pritchard not play, and a bunch of other brands, by the way? What's going on there? A uh, number of things. One is the very biggest advertisers, and uh, I, I would imagine this would apply to P&G, I don't know for sure, but I would answer. Would say uh, just before you answer that, Nick, I should say I, I want to clarify or well, just reiterate that you were a co-author of writing the scoping document for this this report, right? Investigation. You 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 sort of set the wheels in motion on this. Absolutely, um, it was co-authored by the ANA, uh, obviously as the client, and myself and and Tom Tom Triscari, and Tom and I provided a lot of support to the ANA in terms of helping shape the RFP and writing chunks of it. And it was Tom and I who said that to the ANA, look, you know, all the previous reports have been important, but they only went halfway down the chain between the advertiser and the publisher. You have to then also look at what happens 
at the sharp end of it. Um, who is seeing the who is seeing these ads? How many how many people are actually exposed to these ads? What sort of what is the relationship between the price being paid for this advertising and exposure of the advertising? And there's loads of stuff in the report about this. Uh, for example, looking at private marketplaces versus open marketplaces and so on. But the reality is very ugly because uh, when you actually look at the amount of advertising that's actually been seen, let alone acted upon, that's when uh, the real loss of value appears. And you know, there's no mm. point in uh, using the services of all of these data-led companies in the transactional chain if it's not going to lead to a result when a dollar grows as opposed to declines. So, yes, absolutely, uh, this is all about resolving those issues. And yeah, just just I want to get to the brand stuff, but we should also say that you know other players that per the report. You know, you've got others like the Trade Desk, uh, Yahoo, Amazon, Pubmatic. Yeah. Those players, those intermediaries in the in the ad tech supply chain, they didn't participate. They didn't play either, right? So there's quite no. quite a number of players right through that that haven't played. So getting back to um, why someone like a PNG or those major brands wouldn't participate in this, when you would, I guess, argue the more evidence we have, the better the industry could uh, clean itself up. Well, there's there's a number of reasons why. Um, so let's take uh, an advertiser like P&G or whoever comment on any individual cases, obviously, but a lot of them would say, you know what, we've got this under control. We've got the best systems in the marketplace. Uh, why would we want to share our industry-leading thinking with anybody else? Why would we want to have our data mixed with other people's data? And by the way, you know, we believe that we are uh, industry leading in this area, generally speaking, so let's not take part. There's always the FOFO factor, which is the fear of finding out. There's the element of uh, if you are an advertiser and you've got a big deal with the trade desk, for example, and the trade desk say, we don't want to take part, uh, then you go, well, if you don't want to take part, there's no point in us taking part. You've got to also remember, uh, Paul, that 67 or so advertisers expressed an interest in participating in this uh, study, but only 21 of them actually took part. The other 46 fell by the wayside because of the lack of data access, the confidentiality clauses, the contractual restrictions, was there? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So it isn't just about the P&Gs and the Diageos and others who, who weren't able to take part or didn't choose to take part. You've also got over 40 who said they did want to take part but couldn't. So here again is another example of where we have a dysfunctional marketplace because the advertisers uh, do not have access to the data that they need to, to conduct this kind of exercise because they run up against obstacles of people who don't want to play ball, whether that be ad tech companies, sometimes the media agencies can be uh, unhelpful, and the whole, the whole kind of supply chain is locked into uh, a sense of omerta as the Italians would call it, the sense that, you know, we don't want to talk about this because if we do, it opens up a can of worms. So, you know, you've got to compliment and take your hats off to the ANA to have even got this far, really, in terms of producing mm. an extremely comprehensive uh, and very, very insightful report, despite all of the lack of participation, the obstacles that were put in the in the path of the companies carrying out the work. It's to, to have got to this is really quite an achievement despite all of the all of those obstacles so let's talk about the other side of the advertiser role here a brand role which is i take your point on all those other things but equally what role does 
this idea. Well, it's it's what did you call it? Uh, fear of finding out. Fofo, it's essentially there is, and I'm having these conversations in market literally, you know, all year, and certainly in the last couple of months after the NA report came out, is that there's also a lot of executives on on the brand side that could be seen to be negligent and don't want that under their watch. How much of an issue is that as well in, in holding? That's on the marketer brand side, not as opposed to the supply chain. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's an element of that, but that would be very much the, the bit of the iceberg uh, underneath the water. The If you're a, in a senior position in a client company, you want to be on the front foot the whole time. You want to be talking about all the great things that you're doing. You want to be talking about how you are at the leading edge of marketing thinking. You want to say that, uh, you know, we are making fabulous use of TikTok. We are at the leading edge of digital commerce and retail media networks. We are you know, we've got all these initiatives going on in DE&I, whatever those messages are, that's what you want the market to hear. You also want it from a personal reputational point of view to be what people think of you and uh, therefore problems. And this is, uh, there are a number of problems, but they, this one in particular gets buried deep in the, in the downstream part of the uh, organization, often will be delegated to procurement who can and should be very much involved in all of this. But again, it has to be said, at the risk of being struck off yet more Christmas card lists by people, procurement are part of the problem. In fact, they're a big part of the problem in some client organizations because they equate uh, low cost with being a good result. And one of the things that comes out of the ANA study in spades, and is again no secret and has been talked about for many years, is that uh, if you pay peanuts, uh, you get monkeys. In other words, the lower you go in terms of making your agency buy cheaply, the worse the inventory can get. Now, you know, if you take a, a market like uh, television, this has been going on for a long time. So if you want to buy a low cost per thousand, you, you advertise in the middle of the night or the middle of the day or whatever. That's what you do to get cheap, cheap rates. In the online marketplace, you can buy very, very cheap rates, but there's a very good chance that the uh, you will be seen by nobody. A very good chance that the impressions you report are fraudulent or, or in some way invalid. They may be unviewable below the thresholds. So it's possible to buy extremely low costs in digital. But of course, what you then get is virtually nothing for your money. But the way that procurement works in some client organizations is that it's always squeezing the agencies down to buy cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And the agencies don't fight that. What they do is they, instead of saying, we're not going to do that, we're going to uh, resist it, they sort of say, well, now let's go along with this. If we want to win the, this pitch, we need to offer very low rates. So if they want to buy um, CPMs at a dollar a time, we can buy a dollar a time. But to do that, you end up with 44,000 websites, of which uh, 41,000 are virtually useless. With a long chain of uh, invalid traffic, stroke fraud, low viewability. Obviously, brand safety issues come about because of that. And um, you know the the, the reality uh, of all of this. And, um, and it, it's, sometimes you just have to stand back and go, "What's really happening here?" Is that uh, this gravy train has been going on for so many times, and it, it it relies upon trillions of impressions washing through the system the whole time even though everybody knows that a lot of those impressions are of no value whatsoever. But everybody takes a cut along the chain, and nobody really is responsible for accountability of the advertising effectiveness within the supply chain. The client might be on the hook for that, 
but the none of the other players, including the media agencies, are. So the responsibility, the buck gets passed from player to player, and the whole thing just gets diluted a, a, across the supply chain. And it's very, very hard for advertisers to know whether the, the dollar they spend in online advertising really is effective uh, in the way that uh, you know the, the, the market would have you believe. Is there some negligence on, on, on brand marketing buy side, on the client side for this, though? Because ultimately, it's their money. Is, is there not a, an onus to, I think even Mark Pritchard talked about it six years ago, get in the weeds. Uh, I think you talked yeah. about the detail is, 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 is a challenge, right? Well, uh, there is, yes, absolutely. Um, they need to take control. Uh, we have been saying this for quite a long time, and, and uh, hopefully this report will be the one that finally makes it happen is they cannot rely upon anybody else to represent them properly in the marketplace. They have to take control for themselves, whether that be through appointing a chief media officer or chief programmatic officer or whatever. They have to make that investment. And the, there's no real excuse because the investment you can make in, in somebody like that will pay back in, in, in multiples if they do their job properly. And the only way to do this is to actually sit down and say, I am not going to leave this room almost until we have gone through uh, this whole thing, we've gone through the report, we've analysed all our supply chains, we've worked out who we want to work with, how we want to work with them, how we're going to transact in the marketplace, and how we're going to measure and analyse and report on the results. And none of, all of this is entirely doable. There's absolutely no reason why none of this you know, is being done or some, only part of it's being done. And the great thing about this report, and it's the first time really it's happened, is that there is a playbook for every stage of the journey between the dollar leaving you and, and arriving at the consumer. It analyzes it in, in forensic detail. It's 120 pages long, which in itself is a, an issue because people don't want to engage in a document that, that big, but it needs to be that because it has to go into it to a degree of detail that allows those solutions to occur. And so if I were a client, I would be sitting down with all the people I need to sit down with internally first, get all of my organization behind this, including all the relevant stakeholders and procurement and so on, agree what we're going to do, drive it through, and then sit down with the independent supply chain uh, providers and say, right, these are the rules of the game. This is how we're going to work with you guys. These are the contracts we need. These are the audit rights we need. This is how we need you to behave in the marketplace. And you're going to be accountable and responsible for our spend in the way that you say that you want to be. And all of that is doable if you've got the right people driving that, supported by the right legal, financial and contractual uh, apparatus. And the will, Nick. Got to have the intent and the will to want to do it. You've got to have, without that will and intent, you might as well not even bother starting. And you've got to sort of say, you've almost got to say, look, I I, I don't care what happened in the past. You know, we're going to have a truth and reconciliation commission here. We're going to forget about what's happened in the past. We're going to start again. Let's not bother about reputations of people in the past. Let's let's just gloss that over and move forward with with the playbooks that are in the A and A document and other supporting, you know, documentation or whatever it is you need. 
but we're going to start well, again. Can we just race through? Can we race through some of the? Because as per usual, I knew we'd be out of time. We are, but um, <laughs> let's race through some of those solutions or, or fixes that are in that document. I think some of you you alluded to some of it. Hire a chief media officer. Reduce your website buys from what forty five thousand to five hundred. Inclusion list, blacklist. There's some stuff there to talk about. Log level data. Just a, a few things, just to, to tease and whet the appetite for at yeah. least the Australian uh, brands that sit there and go, where the hell do we start on this? Absolutely. Well, there are there are roughly a dozen to 15 different recommendations, depending on how you look at it. Not all of them will be important to everybody, but the first thing to do is to absolutely have the will and the intent. Decide how you're going to set up your programmatic uh, activities. Uh, make sure you have the right uh, supply chains in place. And then you say, right, well, we know that we only need to have maybe 75 to 100 trusted sellers that we're going to work with. Uh, maybe a maximum of uh, 3,000 uh, websites, possibly even less than that. We're only going to work through certain DSPs. We're going uh, to reduce the number of SSPs that we use. We're going to cut out all made-for-advertising uh, activity uh, if um, it doesn't work for us. Or we're going to work on inclusion lists only, not exclusion lists. So we're going to work out which websites that we want to work with. Um, we're going to figure out what our uh, supply path is going to look like and work directly with the DSPs and SSPs and the publishers. And we're going to have you know contracts with those people where transparency is guaranteed. We're going to optimize uh, our SSP strategy. So for example, in the study, there were an average of 19 SSPs being deployed by the participants. ANA says roughly five to seven is the right number to give you the breadth of, uh, of supply that you want. So does that um, mean cutting the number of publishers on that with SSP as in a, a sell-side platform, something that yeah. a publisher uses to sell its inventory? But does that mean finding SSPs that aggregate more publishers or is it reducing the publisher load? Well, you, you've already put, you, you have to reduce your publisher load on the grounds that you're going from 44,000 websites used to maybe 75 to 100 trusted sellers. And within those 75 to 100, you're going to have multiple websites but you're only going to work with right. those and you will choose them carefully and you'll work out who you're going to work with so you're reducing your publisher roster which of course is not going to fa find favor with the publisher market but that's that's just how the market should work you reduce the number of ssps because you don't need as many as you've got at the moment and then you understand how that is all going to work from a technical point of view from an analytics point of view a data point of view and you make sure that the impressions you buy are bid for are the right ones for you and that the right, right price is being paid. And as an advertiser, you have to accept that the unit price of what you're buying is going to go up. So, you know, and this is the bit that they find so hard to uh, accept, Paul, is that uh, they have been paying unrealistically low prices for very poor quality inventory for a very long time. And that on the surface looks as though it's effective. It's not even efficient, let alone effective. It's it's that's not how the market works. There is the long tail of websites produce, you know, virtually no value whatsoever, but you're still paying for them, and everyone's earning on, off the back of that. You have to work out how you use, want to use private marketplaces versus open marketplaces. And one of the stunning st uh, findings of the study is that there is virtually no difference in terms of composition of websites between private marketplaces and open marketplaces except that you pay double 
for private marketplaces to uh, compared to the open marketplace. And so just explain of- a private. I mean, an, an open marketplace, an open platform, is something like a, like a Google, right? Where it's it's uh, you know, the inventory. Anyone can trade the inventory if you or buy the inventory that Google has on its network. But a yeah. private marketplace. Explain to very quickly what that is, and then how the hell does an uh, an open exchange versus a private exchange end up being no difference? Well, I mean, a private marketplace essentially is is where you pretty much agree beforehand what you're going to buy, as opposed to it being uh, open bidding in a you know on a number of exchanges. So it, it's much more it's more curated. It's much more theoretically much more structured. But what this study shows is that uh, that doesn't really that doesn't actually happen in practice. There mm. was virtually no no real distinction between buying uh, openly via sort of real time bidding on open exchanges versus having a, a slightly more structured and curated way of trading, and that's quite a stunning finding in its own right. Now we're getting into the weeds mm. here, perhaps a little bit too yes, much. But, yeah. but the, the point, in some ways, is that advertisers do actually have to get into those mm. weeds, as 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 Mark Pritchard said. The trouble is they're not doing that, and they're they're getting to a point where they almost kind of go, you know what, this is just so uh, complex, so difficult. There are so many obstacles, so many people saying no, that it's it just gets very hard to do. So you have to have a vast amount of determination. You have to use these playbooks. You have to be tough. You have to not take no for an answer, and you have to set yourself some goals. And you have to say, how am I going to improve all of this? So that when I spend a dollar, it doesn't turn into thirty-six cents; it turns into more than a dollar. Now, you know uh, that's that that would be quite a, a turnaround in fortunes. But if you start from that point of view, then you're starting to do your job properly. What happens uh, if the industry doesn't find a fix? If if a large or a majority of players don't get this sorted, what happens? Is there more pressure coming? I think there's one thing that we can say for sure is that with a market like this, which is so dysfunctional, and I don't think that before I go any further, I don't think anybody does not recognize the truth of this report. You will get people saying, you know, it's exaggerated. You'll get people saying it's not as bad as all that. But generally, people who say that have a vested interest in saying it. Anybody who's got a an objective and impartial head on, even if it's agency folk who are being you know, having private thoughts as opposed to their corporate thoughts, will look at this and go, you know what, we recognize this as being true. So if if the industry could just do that, that would be a start. Because the there's not going to be an Armageddon, but what tends to happen in dysfunctional marketplaces where the end user, i.e. the advertiser, is getting poor value for money, is they will start to take their money elsewhere. And what we're starting to see now is advertisers, particularly in the uh, consumer packaged goods marketplace, and now saying, you know what, I'm going to spend my money differently now. I'm going to go into digital commerce. I'm going to go into retail media networks where I have a better chance of seeing where the money is going and being able to measure the effectiveness of it. So I think what's starting to happen is that the money is starting to move out of uh, the open web now. And I think we're seeing, we've seen this in the data. Unfortunately, in some respects, it's going to go even more into the bigger walled gardens where actually the ability to judge effectiveness uh, is, is is limited, of course. But the money will start to drift away. And, you know, the, the sad reality is it does mean that some publishers are going to suffer even more uh, as a result of this. But if they're not adding value, then that's just the, the way of the marketplace. But I do think the advertisers will start to vote with their feet more than they have in the past and will start to look at other ways of of building their brands, of selling their products and services. 
over time, there will be a kind of move away from a dysfunctional marketplace into areas which are more accountable for the money being spent. To wrap this right up, I did mention that you're obviously involved in the in the scoping document. That you were you're a co-founder of a, a media hot shop in its day. I remember as a cub reporter looking at Manning Godley from afar, going, "Well, that's uh, everyone talked about them being the go." But right now, you you're sort of running a company uh, in Cyclomedia International, which is I, I love the name. But you are what does that do? What are you doing now? That's merely a sort of uh, a brand for my my consulting services. The most important thing I'm doing right now is is as uh, non-executive vice chairman for a company called Media Marketing Compliance. Um, and uh, we're basically, we're there to make sure that uh, when, it, when the contracts exist between the various players in the supply chain, that they, are, they actually get delivered. And the, the key to all of that is having the right contracts in, in the first place. And uh, the, the point about the ANA study uh, is it very important in itself, but it does, it does say that you need to start again looking at your supply chains. You need to have the right contracts with those supply chains, you need to have the right people auditing those supply chains. So, you know, we're part of that. We're part of that process. On the one hand, I'm consulting in terms of helping clients think these issues through and coming up with solutions. But I'm also involved uh, in the more sort of nitty gritty side of it, trying to help uh, MMC carry out, you know, the work that they do in terms of providing clients with that level of contractual rigor and and uh, financial transparency. So, I wear a few hats in this area. Nick Manning, great conversation. Thanks for joining and coming in early uh, from the UK on this one. And as I said, we'll follow up um, and would love to get some more feedback from you on how it's, how it's rolling internationally. Thanks for joining, Nick. It's been a great pleasure, Paul. And uh, we, let's, let's all of us hope that uh, we're going to see some real action now. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.